Please turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 14. If you do not have one, there's a Red Pew Bible in the rack in front of you, and I'd encourage you to take it and follow along. We have finished our series in the book of 1 Corinthians, and Lord willing, next week we will start in the Gospel of Mark. But this morning I want to start us with a question. I want us to consider this question. What does it look like for us to disagree? What does it look like for us to hold an opinion? Perhaps even a strong opinion. Perhaps even a convinced, convicted opinion. And yet interact with those to whom we do not agree. That's the question I want us to consider this morning. That's the question our country needs to be considering. But this morning, we are going to look at it from a biblical perspective, from a scriptural perspective, to understand that as we gather together this morning as a body of Christians, that we declare that Jesus Christ died for our sins. We're declaring that he was buried, that on the third day he rose again. So we gather as a people proclaiming salvation in the one who did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but rather he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, and he humbled himself, becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. That is the Jesus that we follow. That's the Jesus in whose name we gather. And so this morning, brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ, I want to exhort us with Scripture that as we walk in an increasingly divisive culture, that we strive to walk as believers in Jesus Christ, representing Jesus Christ and honoring Jesus Christ in all of our interactions. Now we walk in an interesting season. Because even as I talk about interactions, I'm not just talking about I come across you on the street and we exchange a couple words. For sure, that's an important interaction. I'm also talking about the emails that we send or the social media posts we post. There are so many different ways in which we communicate with different people these days. And we want to incorporate all of that to have an understanding of how should a Christian interact in This season. Now I want to say from the very beginning, as I attempt to shepherd us through this this morning with the word of God, that I do not have a single issue in mind. My aim is not to take on politics or racial tensions or the coronavirus or even the Vikings playoff chances. For with varying degrees, the scripture speaks to those things except for the Vikings. More importantly than that for this morning, I do believe the scriptures are epically clear on how believers in Jesus Christ should interact when engaging these topics. And so as we push towards Romans 14 this morning, that's our our landing spot, I want to start with some contextual work. I want to put Romans 14 in the context of the book of Romans, especially if you don't know the book of Romans. In many ways, this is a little simplistic. If you break the book of Romans into two parts, you would find that the first 11 chapters of Romans is an argument for salvation. Paul's going to argue that man is sinful, every last one of us, and that due to our sin, there's a penalty that must be paid. 
And then rather than leaving us in our sin that God initiates on our behalf, God sends his son Jesus Christ in order to pay our penalty to deliver us from sin. That's his argument. And so starting in chapter 12, Paul's argument shifts from our sin problem and God's response, what he did on our behalf, to then how do we as believers in Jesus Christ, how do we respond to salvation? How do we live? What does that look like? And so Paul starts off chapter 12, making that transition by saying, Romans 12 verse 1, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Paul's going to articulate that because of what God has done of in Christ, because of salvation, we're to present our bodies as a living sacrifice. He's actually using Levitical terms that we would understand that you're supposed to take yourself and make yourself the offering. The offering that's been declared holy, that's been declared acceptable because of the work of Christ, that you would take yourself and you would offer your person, your life, to be an offering to God. You would sacrifice yourself. Paul says that's worship. In fact, he'll press it further and say it's not just worship, it's the Christian life. It's Monday through Friday, 8 to 5. It's Saturday from 6 on. I mean, it's every moment of every day. Is this called a sacrifice ourselves? It's the Christian life, as Paul puts it. It's how we respond to the gospel. So then Paul expands on that over the next couple chapters in different ways. He would argue and going on chapter 12 that we should be devoted to one another in brotherly love. He argues in chapter 13 that we would submit ourselves to the government like we'd submit ourselves to our father. And then later says, finally, wake up from your slumber because our salvation is near. He's trying to paint this picture for them of a life submitted to Christ, of a life responding to the gospel. Of a life that's willing to sacrifice itself. Of a life that's willing to lay down its rights. And then he comes to chapter 14. And that's where we're going to hone in this morning. Because starting in verse 1, Paul writes, As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Paul starts by posing a a situation, a scenario. You have two believers, two different kinds of people. One is a vegetarian. The other likes to eat steak alongside his broccoli and carrots. Suffice it to say they both believe they're right. More than that, they're both probably dug in on their opinion. Because they don't just believe they're right, they believe the other is wrong. So how should they handle it? How should they go forward? Should they belittle one another? 
Should they degrade one another's dignity? Should they challenge each other's salvation? Beloved, I've seen all three of those on social media this week between believers. Look at what Paul writes. As for the one whose faith is weak, is weak in faith. Now let's not get caught up in weak and strong yet. That's, those could be entirely unhelpful comments. It's never a good spot to be like, well, I'm strong and you're weak, therefore I'll accommodate you. Brothers, that's, that, sisters, that's not how we're to come to this text. Look at it and to consider for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him. The word means to receive him, even to take him by the hand and lead him. And Paul adds, because he knew what we were thinking, but not to quarrel over opinions. He's not trying to argue that you welcome him so you can lead him on into your truth. Come alongside me. Let me show you why I'm smarter than you. That's not what he's saying here. It's not a setup. He means have them over to your house, spend time together, get to know them, understand one another, have fellowship with one another. Why? Because what we have in Jesus Christ is far more than what we disagree with. Paul says, welcome him. Brothers and sisters, the church is supposed to be wide enough to accept all kinds of people who disagree on gray matters. And by that, I mean things that the scriptures aren't explicit about. Do you know, I know Christians who are passionate about manual transmissions. And I know Christians who drive automatic transmissions. We're supposed to get along. And I know Christians who play cards and Christians who don't play cards. And I know Christians who drink alcohol. And I know Christians who completely abstain from it. And I know Christians who are registered Democrats and registered Republicans and registered independents and registered libertarians. I could get into like 16 more categories. But what we're supposed to see in the text is that we have far more in common in Christ than we have without him. So we're supposed to have fellowship across all of these boundaries. And not just trite, meaningless fellowship. We're supposed to have meaningful Christian fellowship. Which just doesn't mean we just have a Facebook friend. It means that this could be someone you actually interact with and love. You'd be hard-pressed to find a better example over the last couple of weeks than when you see Ruth Bader Ginsburg and her relationship with Scalia. Two people who adamantly disagreed and yet traveled together. That, that's the kind of relationship Paul's calling us to here. That Christ would supersede all of these superficialities of this world. So Paul pushes on in verse 3. He pushes into us a little bit. Not just welcome them. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains. And let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats. For God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls. And he will be upheld for the Lord is able to make him stand. Paul writes, do not despise. Do not pass judgment. 
He's holding both sides accountable to the discussion. Why? Because God has welcomed him. Because God has welcomed this person into the fellowship of believers, we are too to welcome them into the fellowship of believers. This believer you don't agree with is acceptable before the Lord. So we're called not to despise him or look down upon him or suppose yourself as better or smarter or come across that way. Likewise, we're not to pass judgments or to assume. Paul goes on to say, who are you to pass judgments? As if you, in all of your omniscience, might ever be wrong. Both of you will stand before the master. The strong and the weak. The card player and the non-card player. Pick your illustration. Both of you will stand before the master. Paul wants you to understand that. Because it's the master who allows the possibility and the power for standing. He's the strong one. It isn't us. And Paul leans into another illustration. I think in part because he wants you to understand how widespread this is. Because it's not just vegetarian and meat eaters. Verse 5. One person esteems one day as better than another. While another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. Let's pause for a second here. Paul isn't saying don't have opinions. Paul isn't saying don't have convictions. In fact, he's pressing in on you to tell you you should become fully convinced. Look, if you want to have an argument, lean into your argument. Know it. Understand it. Know your position. Understand why you prefer this day and that day. Prefer why, understand why you prefer meat and not just vegetables. Understand your position. He's not asking you to be ignorant. He's asking you to be humble. There's an entirely different distinction to be said here. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. But still welcoming and still esteeming. Verse 6. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. So then whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. Beloved, what Paul is doing in this passage, he's leaning into a truth that's often called Christian liberty. And it's exceedingly important because we are to see and understand Paul's charity in this. To understand there is charity in Jesus Christ. If you observe the day, do it for the Lord. If you eat, do it in honor of the Lord. If you don't, do it in honor of the Lord. We're to recognize within Christendom that there are lots of opinions you can hold. And if the Bible isn't explicit about it, you might be a little careful about your explicit dogmatic opinion. As if you're right. In a way that God didn't intend for it to be declared as right. 
But God in his ultimate wisdom could have given us a checklist of every right righteous opinion ever known to peoplehood. He could have declared it all. And he didn't. He left us with Christian liberty and he did it on purpose. Because it's not about being right or wrong. It's about honoring Jesus. It's about lifting up Jesus. It's about Christ being sufficient. It's about Christ being more than all these little things that we want to raise up. It's about Jesus being on the throne. Verse 9, for to do this end, or for to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord of both the dead and of the living. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? And why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me. Every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. Brothers and sisters, Paul is calling us to not stand over one another, but to recognize we all stand under Jesus. To understand that we won't get it all sorted out here. That if you're convinced you can play cards, play cards. You'll stand before the throne. And if you're convinced you can't play cards, don't play cards. You will stand before the throne. I assure you, all of us will stand before the throne. That's Paul's point here. We shouldn't waste time holding each other in judgment on these great issues in Scripture. Because we will give an account, listen to me, not just for the positions we hold, but for how we treat those who hold different positions than us. How we treat our brothers and sisters. One of the biggest challenges we get into our house is my kids get in fights with one another. And sometimes the arguments are silly and sometimes they're not silly. But but what I care about the most as a dad is how they treat each other. If they'll treat each other with kindness, if they treat each other with respect, love covers a multitude of sins. That's the challenge here for us as believers. That we be mindful of how we treat one another. How we uphold one another. How we honor one another because we will stand before the throne verse 13 coming to a conclusion therefore let us not pass judgment on one another any longer but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother i know and i'm persuaded in the lord jesus that nothing is unclean in itself but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it's unclean Paul starts to bring his argument to a conclusion. Don't pass judgment on one another on matters the scriptures aren't clear about. Which is to say, there are lots of matters the scriptures are clear about, right? We're not arguing here that we start doctrinally degrading ourselves. If if you're getting drunk, we should confront you. If you're sleeping around, we should confront you. If you're living contrary to the scriptures, we should confront you. And yet, if you're living in a way the scriptures don't address, we need to be mindful about honoring you. If you're a vegetarian, I'm going to leave you alone about it. 
Why? Because it's not a matter of the scriptures. It's not a matter of, of Christ in this. But Paul pushes it further. Decide never to put a stumbling block or a hindrance in the way of a brother. He's saying don't lead somebody against their conscience. He leads into it further, verse 15. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. So do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. Beloved, consider what he's saying. For just a moment, I want you to consider the fact. Let's just make a hypothetical situation. Consider the idea that you love bacon. I'm going to go on a limb here and say most of you do. You love bacon. Your friend's a vegetarian. It's fine that you like bacon. It's fine that your friend likes broccoli. But don't invite your brother over for a pig roast. Don't take your freedoms and rub it in his face. That's a stumbling block. That's what he's articulating here. But beloved, we have to be so much more careful now. Why? Because it used to be easy. It used to be being mindful about having people in your house. And then they created this little tool called the World Wide Web. And some of you may not realize this, but everybody sees it. So when you post things, you put things out there. It's for everyone to see. We don't often recognize that we're putting stumbling blocks out in front of people by some of the things we put out there. Listen to me. If you post something that says, if you think this, you cannot be a believer in Jesus Christ. Do you not see that you've added to the gospel? Do you not see the entire book of Galatians is written contrary to that opinion? You've committed a classic heresy. We have to be so mindful and considerate of one another that we don't go around blasting one another on the internet. And listen, I get it. You're reading along and this really cute meme comes up and it's full of firepower. Oh man, this is going to blow those people away. Man, when they see this, whoo, they're going to take it. There's nothing loving about that. There's nothing honoring about that. There's nothing Christ exalting about that. We have to be mindful when Paul says, don't just pass judgment and adds, decide never to put a stumbling block. That that means something. When Paul says, if your brother's grieved by what you eat, is it possible that some of the ways we operate either in society or in social media grieves our brothers and sisters in Christ who think differently than we do? Then maybe we should be mindful of that. Paul says you're no longer walking in love. We should be mindful of that. Paul calls us to love Christ, to love Christ in our brother. And to love our brother. He calls us to honor one another enough that we'd be willing to pull back our own rights. To honor one another enough that we'd be willing to exalt Christ over any particular issue in the world. That's it. 
There's not an exception. There's not an asterisk. Yeah, but they're an idiot. It's not there. Well, but yeah, but they do believe differently. I mean, if they knew this argument, then it's not there. You're no longer walking in love. Paul brings it to a head when he writes in verse 17, For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and of peace and of joy in the Holy Spirit. Church, we need to understand that the kingdom of God is not a matter of Republicans and Democrats. That the kingdom of God is not a matter of the coronavirus. And it's not a matter of vegetarians and carnivores. The kingdom of God is of righteousness. It's of peace. It's of joy. And it will last forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. And none of the other stuff will. So why would we prioritize that over the kingdom? Why would we take the trivial trials of this world that will soon pass away and let them be dividers? They're temporary. And church, we need to recognize that we are called not to be like this world, but to be set apart from it. We cannot act like the world. We have to act set apart from the world. So Paul brings his argument to its conclusion by writing in verse 18, whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Let us pursue what makes for peace and mutual upbuilding. Beloved, whoever serves Christ is acceptable to Christ, belongs to Christ, is a child of Christ, therefore is your brother, is your sister, and so we're called to pursue peace. Pursue means we chase it. It's an active movement. We're going after it. Like a dog chasing a car. That's what we're supposed to chase. Not our rightness. Not our opinions. Not our dogma. We're supposed to pursue what makes for peace. We find this throughout the New Testament. The author of the book of Hebrews exhorts us to this. Strive for peace with everyone. And for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Jesus exalts this by saying in Matthew 5, blessed are the peacemakers for they shall be called the sons of God. Let's pause for a moment and think about this. Jesus calls Simon the zealot to follow him. What's a zealot? He's passionate about Rome. He's passionate about politics. I'm sorry, he's passionate about Israel. He's outerly against Rome. And so we take this guy and put him with Matthew, the tax collector, in the same room. Those guys couldn't have been politically more different. We often don't think about those categories. And yet Jesus takes these two and says, you're both disciples. In fact, I bet there were times Jesus was like, you two go out together. When I send you out. 
We're, we're supposed to be called to pursue what makes for peace, not just peace, but for makes for peace, which means we need to be able to initiate it. We need to be able to start it. We need to be the first people to humble ourselves, the first people to bite our lip, the first people to choose not to post something. We need to be the first people to strive to bring peace that strives to welcome people, that strives to exalt the purpose and the cause of Jesus Christ over our opinions. Paul says, let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Which is to say that we're to prioritize building up. Not tearing down. Not being right. Not winning the argument. One of the commentators I read this week urged us that rather than being a stumbling block, that we become a stepping stone. Not towards our position, but to Christ. That our our role is to be a stepping stone. That people would watch us in person and go, hmm, and then Jesus. They should see us on social media and go, hmm, and then Jesus. We should always, in all of our interactions on the internet or otherwise, people should be able to watch us and go, hmm, and Jesus. We should be pushing people towards Christ. Not pushing them away. That's why he ends in verse 20. Do not for the sake of food destroy the work of God. Beloved, you've all come up with exceptions in your mind. I'm not naive to that. Do not for the sake of politics destroy the work of God. Do not for the sake of science destroy the work of God. Do not, for the sake of your opinion, destroy the work of God. Insert anything you want. Because as he's used the word food here, he's used it as an illustration to describe the differences that Christians were instituting between themselves. So any difference you want to prop up as your idol should be instituted there. Do not destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it's wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. Brothers and sisters, we often do not take into account the damage we do. We often don't take into account the wake that we leave behind us. And is it possible that in our political opinions or in our views of the pandemic, or our comments on race, or our thoughts on the Vikings' defense, that we're not prioritizing Jesus, that we're not prioritizing the gospel, that we're not showing the world that Christ is primary in our lives. Unless you think it's just you, it's me. I cannot think of the number of times that my wife, my bride, the one who knows me the best, says, Ben, sometimes I think you like barbecue more than Jesus. Ben, sometimes I think you like the Broncos more than Jesus. We have to be mindful about what comes across out of us. We don't understand the wake that we're leaving behind us. We have to prioritize Jesus, prioritize the gospel. 
Beloved, as we entered into Romans 14 this morning, Paul gave us a pathway to disagree and yet still honor, honor one another. A pathway we desperately need. A pathway the world needs to be watching. I'll summarize it for you in eight steps. Paul at seven. I'm a bad counter. Paul says, welcome them. Do not look down on them or pass judgment on them. Be convinced of your own opinion, your own position, and yet recognize that one day you will stand before the throne, not just for the positions you hold, but for how you treated those who believe differently than you. So live wisely and cautiously, mindful to not be a stumbling block. Love your brothers and sisters for whom Christ died. So that finally, we might live in a way that brings honor to Jesus. By building up fellow believers. By pursuing peace and mutual upbringing. I want to finish with the words of James in James 1. Words my guess is most of us know well and need to apply better. I say that mostly for me. James 1.19 Know this, my beloved brothers. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we gather together this morning as a body of sinners who fall short on a regular basis. But because of the blood of Jesus Christ, we have been saved. We've been given that which we do not deserve. We've been given salvation. We've been justified. You're at work in us, God. You promise that he who's begun a good work will be faithful to complete it. God, every last one of us is in process of you transforming our lives into the likeness of Jesus. Father, I pray this morning that you would use your word to transform us. That you would use your word to quicken our likeness towards you. That we become more like you even faster. Father, there's no one here that desires to be a stumbling block. But often we need to be reminded of the wake we leave unintentionally. Father, I pray that you would build us up to remind us of the fullness of Jesus, the sufficiency of Jesus, the completeness of Jesus. To know that the salvation that Jesus Christ brings is available to absolutely everybody. And we pray, Father, that you would allow us to steward your gospel. That we would never be a hindrance to people coming to you. But that we would be broad, broad, broad proclaimers that salvation is available to all. Jesus, we love you. And we're so thankful for the salvation that we've been granted by your sacrifice.
Father, keep renewing us and working on us and transforming us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.